From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Kohler, your host here with a short plea. If you listen to the podcast, and especially if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever service you're using to listen to me right now. It makes a huge difference in our rankings, which makes it easier for other people to find the show. Thanks. Now that that's out of the way, let's get started. On this episode of The Surgery Set, I speak with Dr. Rebecca Bush. Dr. Bush is one of our stellar general surgery chief residents here at UW. We're talking about the epidemic of opioids ravaging our communities, especially here in the Midwest. She recently gave a Grand Rounds talk entitled The Opioid Crisis, One Surgeon's Perspective. And as you'll hear, the opioid crisis has directly impacted her on a personal as well as a professional level. A link to her powerful talk is on the Surgery Set webpage. Dr. Bush, welcome to the Surgery Set. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here with us in this capacity. You and I go back a ways. Since you started working here, maybe. <laughs> Two and a half years. So you, yeah. you predate me here a bit. You're one of our chief residents. Correct. In year seven. Seven. Wow. And on your way to a critical care fellowship Yes. in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Lucky Michigan. I'll say it now and I'll say it again. But you did a great grand rounds about the opiate epidemic. And it was striking for a couple reasons to me. One because it was just amazing background on a topic that I think we're increasingly coming to understand as surgeons, but which I at least had not fully appreciated um, either in terms of sort of the role that doctors play or even the scope of this epidemic. But the reason that you chose that topic is because you you yourself have a personal connection to this, right? And it's Mm -hmm. not just patients. Correct. So my little brother, when I was an intern, um, he passed away uh, from an opioid-associated uh, overdose. And, you know, that was sort of a unique perspective, and I sort of felt like I need, owed it almost to him and the fam- and my family to share this experience and sort of what we can do as surgeons or doctors yeah. to educate ourselves. Obviously a huge tragedy for your family, but but not just you. I mean, your whole family has sort of sublimated this horrible event mm-hmm. into a mission of, of educating people about opioid abuse, right? Right. So um, I, my parents set up a foundation in his name and have been working in doing some research, even though they're very much not researchers, which is yeah. always entertaining. Your dad is a psychiatrist? He's a psychiatrist, okay. but he's very clinical and huh. not at all academic and he tries really hard and he wants to be um, and is very passionate about it. Yeah. Um, but he's gotten involved in a lot of the political work that has been associated with the opioid epidemic and in trying to find ways to get involved in the community and improve education and get set up with other people nationally that help make policy and promote change. Yeah, and I mean, in your talk, you sort of go through a lot of the details, so we don't need to rehash them mm-hmm. here. I mean, uh, uh, people can go and they can see the talk, which is a pretty comprehensive, I think, review of the literature of what we know about well, opioid prescribing, you know, among physicians and surgeons, at least. There is just so much, you know, at some point you have to sort of limit yourself, otherwise you could keep talking forever, and yeah. I definitely didn't want to do that, so. <laughs> you came in right at the hour <laughs> mark, it was perfect. Taking your own perspective on this, and... Mm-hmm. And the fact that you are a researcher, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you are a multiply published 
surgical nutrition researcher, um, mm-hmm. you, you, you know all about sort of the scientific approach to these problems. And you also have the benefit of, you know, a personal experience, hard one, in, in understanding kind of the personal side of this. How do you blend those two perspectives? For me, it's harder to blend those perspectives than I think it is for, say, my father, because, you know, I don't know that I have so much of a research interest in the opioid epidemic, but more of a sort of personal interest in ensuring people are educated. And maybe one day that'll turn into a research interest for me, but I think right now that's just a little overwhelming. Yeah, sure. I mean, but you are capable, I think probably more than the average person of reading the data and sort of saying like, this paper makes sense, this paper doesn't, this is how you pool these two ideas. And I thought you did a great job in the talk of sort of talking about coming at it from a variety of different perspectives. So what do we know about how surgeons prescribe? What do we know about how surgeons change their behavior? What do we know about what the number of opiates that people get? Like, how does it change what they do? The crazy thing is just the variation there. And there's no set standard in any way, shape, or form. And I think that was probably one of the most surprising things was just how all over the place everybody was. And, you know, dude, is that acceptable? Right. I mean, I remember when I was an intern on trauma, Mm -hmm. our instruction was don't do anything that's going to make phone calls. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we would take trauma patients who were super banged and broken and we would look at how much medication they were using and we would say, okay, well, let's give them a couple weeks worth of that. And so you would take, you know, 15 milligrams of oxycodone every three hours and you'd multiply that by eight and that by the number of days. And we were sending people home with prescriptions for like 200 200 tablets tablets, on a routine basis. Right. And I think that that had gotten better by the time I left, but I never got any formal education about like this is how many we need. And I think it was because no one really knew. No. Like no one had done the studies. Like how how much do you actually need? Right. And I remember when I was a medical student um, working with different interns, uh, we worked really closely with them and I would do a lot of the prescriptions for them and fill them out. And uh, one person always had me write a prescription for 20 pills and a different resident had me write a prescription for 20, 40, or 60, depending on the type of surgery that the patient had. And I don't know necessarily that that generated more or less phone calls or how that played out. That was just their different habits. And I don't know that there was specific reasoning or anything behind that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't been rational because as you point out in your talk, for a long time, I mean, until quite recently, these drugs were quote unquote not addictive. Right. Right. Which was not true. Correct. Um, And then, you know, now we're all sort of picking up the pieces for that. But you you quote um, David Melnick, who's one of the other surgeons here, mm-hmm. um, and the work that he did with some of the other residents, uh, looking at variation in prescribing practices within our own institution, where mm-hmm. I think we're, you know, as mindful probably as anyone about this issue, and, and the data's crazy. Right. Well, I mean, I think the, the data was from ours sort of showed that we're the same as everywhere else, and where that we don't have a, a set standard or a policy or anything like that, and we end up over-prescribing. And so you know, all it really seems to take is some initiative in order to cut back on that prescribing. Yeah. And you point to some examples of, you know, people when they sort of get that feedback, mm-hmm. when they realize that 95% of patients, I think was the number, yeah. use fewer than five pills right. for common general surgery operations. Like, now that I know that, like, okay, five pills, that's fine. It's like no skin off my back, right? right? But I think there's so much just you don't know when you're starting out. And, you know, I, and I don't know that anyone ever 
gathers that information unless they're specifically looking for it. So you can go your entire career, I think, without really having a grasp on what people do or don't do. Is there an, a magic number? Is there like, you know, if you prescribe 29 pills, the risk of being addicted is very low. And if you prescribe 31, it's it doesn't seem like it. That. Yeah. Um, although, you know, some of the studies show that duration of use is um, most associated when and duration of use and number of refills is most associated with chronic use over time. But really the sort of strength of tablets or anything like that has not been shown to be as associated and it's really not procedure dependent. Yeah. Which is fascinating, right? How do you explain that? Right. I mean it being patient factors some to some degree. Genetic level mm-hmm. thing that just predisposes you to Right opioid addiction in these conversations because we don't have great data like even though there's a lot written about it like I feel I feel like I fall back on anecdote which is I took some Percocet one time when my wisdom teeth came out and it was more fun having the wisdom tooth pain than having the Percocet so I just opted for the former I you know and I and so I'm sort of like well I just don't understand how any include ever like Right. Addic- but people there are, are a lot of and people all that are. kinds of people, mm-hmm. and it's it's unpredictable who it's going to be. It's not necessarily going to be the person that takes a hundred tabs, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily going to be the person with the history of chronic opioid abuse or other addictive behaviors. Right? right. And so I think that was one thing for me that came out of my brother's case is, you know, he's a smart kid, and you know, came from a well, like a, a good family and everything, yeah. same as me, yet. Uh, he suffered from this addiction and I didn't and you know I don't have a great reason as to why right and until we have a way of saying you know we can identify which patients are going to have this reaction and which ones aren't the only answer right is to Mm -hmm. try to minimize the exposure right so that we don't find ourselves in this you know with with these people that we can't identify ahead of time getting Mm -hmm. addicted what do you think is the the way forward? I mean, what with what's going on now, obviously the opioid ep- epidemic is getting traction. I mean, mm-hmm. I think finally physicians are sort of waking up to like, oh, we play a role in this, right? It's not exclusively the black tar heroin that's mm-hmm. coming up from Mexico, right? Like we are starting, we're the proximate cause in this. Right. Surgeons play a big role. Primary care prescribes a lot. Pain medication people obviously prescribe a lot. We're in a regulated environment, mm-hmm. um, and we have the ability to actually control the supply of this in a way that, you know, the heroin people is a sort of a separate problem. What do we do to get from here to where we need to be? I mean, I think a large part of it is just education on the part of physicians um, and trying to promote different policies to try to... Um, limit excess in whatever way possible and so whether that is sending patients home with fewer pills yet taking advantage of the technology for two-point verification to sort of call in refills if you will um, as a means to you know be there for your patients yet also sort of restrict the amount dispensed at a time or whether that's encouraging patients to bring medications back to clinic to properly return or dispose of them because that's really hard to do Right. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. it is not straightforward if you have a bunch of opioids laying around the house. What how you properly dispose of them? Right. You're not supposed to put right. them down the toilet. You're not supposed to just throw them in the trash. But I mean, I think if there's some way to incentivize that, um, yeah. which some places are ruling out. But we talked a little bit about their buyback buyback programs, right? programs. Yeah. and I think that would be a way to encourage people mm-hmm. to 
you know, potentially not just save them for a rainy day because I feel like a lot of people have them decide to hold on to them because they're like, oh, what if I have pain on this random Tuesday? Right. Um, Not thinking so much like, what if my two-year-old comes across these? What if my my house gets broken into? Yeah, right. Or like, you know, anything like that. Yeah. I think probably some of the most publicized cases end up being those of teenagers and young adults who overdose. Although even though the most or the greatest population where overdose occur are really in sort of the 30 to 50 year old men. Mm. Um, so I think that's, you know, just something else to think about because, you know, you end up with all of these grieving parents that try to work for a cause. Whereas if you think about more middle-aged populations, they sort of want to get on with their life a little bit. Yeah, and they sort of, like, vanish into obscurity, right? Mm-hmm. Another unexplained, unexpected death, short obituary, and right. and, and the epidemic is sort of silent, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, these are not things that are happening. And there's a stigma associated yeah. with it. I mean, right. I remember uh, talking with one of our leaders when I was an intern and going with through my brother's death, and he'd asked me how my brother died, and I told him, he said, oh, well, we won't, ha- we won't include that or something like that in some mm-hmm. sort of... We won't share that information, which is fine. I mean, it's private information. It doesn't need to be shared. But at the same time, like, focusing on the fact that you don't need to share it or that we won't share it sort of ends up stigmatizing it, I think, further. Right. Like, if he had died, you know, from some rare cancer or a trauma, right? Like, you would share that and you would say, like, oh, look, this is -hmm. is the tragedy of this disease pancreatic cancer you mm-hmm. know like donate to the pancreatic cancer charities and that we don't have that no. for what is one of the most deadly diseases in certainly recent american history mm-hmm. right i mean the numbers on this are crazy yes i was just put i just put in a grant on opioid education trying to sort of do feedback to physicians across the state and so i was looking at the wisconsin death index on this stuff and the number of deaths from opiate abuse and overdose exceeds the deaths from car crashes, prostate cancer. It's about the same number as colon cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's 10 times the number of unintentional firearms injuries. I mean, it's like, it's right up there with poisonings. I mean, this is a, it is a major, major killer. Right. And I at least had had no idea the scope. Yeah. Um, Because I think you're right. It has come up like quietly. Right, mm-hmm. because people don't want to talk about it. It's kind of a shameful thing, and now it's it's just everywhere. So, what is your your family's foundation focused on now? Um, so there are sort of two portions for it. The memorial fund we've donated some to an adolescent treatment center that is being developed in um, the Chicagoland area. Otherwise, helping to promote having naloxone available on emergency uh, EMS vehicles, Hmm. and then otherwise helping to sort of forward and support political moves and events to increase awareness. And then there is also an educational component to it where um, they have a separate website um, mainly focused on education about the opioid epidemic as well as the history of it, the course, the scope, and sort of the role of the FDA uh, that they've played and or not played in uh, helping to control this and you know also providing other links that to to various websites that help further define scopes and provide data and just help to provide education so that's sort of the two parts that they're working with right fantastic stuff i mean it's just like raising awareness and and taking like i said this tragedy 
and turning it into like a force for good is just so remarkable. The role of physicians in in the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we can control how much we prescribe. You know, as individuals, we can change the numbers on our prescriptions. Right. What else can we be doing? I think the other part is educating patients. You know, I presented some data that you know only six percent of of or some lo- very low percentage of. Um, residents in particular, because that's the only data they looked at, talked to their patients about proper opioid disposal and taking narcotic abuse history. And, you know, I think that that number is probably pretty similar across the country and, um, you know, increasing that or providing patient education uh, or risk stratification yeah. uh, on a routine basis could be uh, beneficial um, or another part that people could play. Although then I guess it always comes down to the whose responsibility is that? Because is it the prescriber? Is it, does that fall then on the nurses? Does it fall, you know? Yeah. Like who does that actually fall on? And nobody wants to sort of assume extra responsibility, right? Right, right. I mean, everyone's I mean, so busy write, with everything You want to write your discharge prescriptions. Like, do you also want to go in and do like a 15-minute like exit interview with right. every family? Like, yeah, how are you going to do that? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> we got to do something. Right. And so I, I don't, I've ended up, when I meet the patients, I usually talk to them about what prescriptions I'm going to give them after surgery and, you know, really focus on sort of non-narcotic uh, analgesics and, you know, ask them, like, you know, we can give you a couple of pills, but, you know, these are going to be the main things and sort of setting expectations as to, like, what their pain should be like or what pain medications they should be using following relatively common procedures. So yeah, how is your prescribing? What do you, what do you do? I mean, you're <laughs> you're probably the most thoughtful and aware about this of, you know, anybody here because of your personal investment in this problem. So I, I think it's still hard. Um, you know, I, I do try to talk to every patient about, you know, what what they can do to avoid narcotic use and that narcotics have a lot of side effects and we want to try to minimize those by minimizing the amount of narcotics that they use. So I think I probably fall somewhere on this, on the, within the ranges of the presented data um, as to, or like what we should be prescribing just because I've read those articles and I think they're important and, you know, have sort of set that up as a kind of standard. Mm -hmm. You know, we can probably prescribe less than that. Yeah, I mean, you hear stories about, there was a big article in the New York Times recently about a woman who had a cesarean section or hysterectomy mm-hmm. in, in Germany. They told her to drink tea. And they said, have, she said, I'm having a lot more pain. They said, have more tea, basically, right? You can have some right. Tylenol, and if it gets really bad, you can have some Advil. Right. right. Or it's so, I mean, it's so personal. It didn't sound like fun. No. You know? But some patients are like, oh, I just want some, I, I'm fine. I take some Tylenol for pain. That's it. And other right. patients are, you know, screaming bloody murder. And so it's trying to figure out, you know, do do they have the same pain requirements or how can you work with both groups, right? Right. And this notion that we were sort of inculcated with, you know, in my training, I'm sure in yours, pain mm-hmm. is the fifth vital sign. Right. Um, you know, it, it really became, you know, there was an expectation that you're you should have pain-free post-surgical right. and so, experience and and need we need to probably dial back from that and say you're right. going to be uncomfortable we're going to get it so that like your pain if is you're manageable. laying quietly your pain is manageable you're not going to be playing soccer post up day one right. from your laparotomy 
Right. And then, so I think that's part of setting the expectations. And then additionally, um, you know, I think there are a lot of other factors involved with, you know, the changing of um, hydrocodone from uh, class three to class two and making that harder to then call in prescriptions. But there are means to, you know, use the two-point verification system to call in prescriptions now uh, that we just don't take advantage of. Uh, And, you know, additionally, there was fear about the HCAPs um, survey and how that affected uh, provider ratings uh, based on pain control, although data really hasn't, there's one article that shows that data really hasn't played out in terms of patient satisfaction and the amount of pain medication that's provided. Yeah. Um, so I think there are a lot of fear of repercussions or fear of inconvenience, and mm-hmm. so that played a significant role as well. And that may not be real, right? right. I mean, like, no one's actually proven any of this stuff really no. happens, that fewer prescriptions lead to more phone calls, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a topical topic, right? Because this is finally, like, we've sort of turned the lights on in the room, and we're realizing, like, exactly what the nature of the situation is. And um, and doing our best, you know, but, but to have the guidance of uh, people who understand the literature and also can tell us what the personal consequences are mm-hmm. in a personal way, someone that we know, you know, um, telling us the story of, of, of opioid abuse, I think was enormously powerful. So I just want to thank you so much for, for the work you've done for your seven good years here. Um, and the very, very best of luck to you in Michigan. Do not be a stranger to the surgery set. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Rebecca Bush. You can find a link to her Grand Rounds talk on the opioid crisis on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. On our next episode, I'll be speaking with famous transplant surgeon Dr. Alan Kirk about organ transplantation and, on a surprisingly related note, federal immigration reform. See you then. And please don't forget to rate the podcast. Thanks. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.